0: You can open up to the book of Second Peter. Knowledge affects our behavior. I'll say that again. Knowledge affects our behavior. I remember the day when my first child, uh, my daughter Lily, uh, was born. Uh, now, I knew my wife was pregnant. That's it's obvious. Um. But I was not carrying the baby. So the reality of the fact that I was going to be a father did not really set in. The weightiness of that didn't set in until the doctor handed me this newborn baby. And all of a sudden, I was flooded with the knowledge and the reality that I was responsible for this new life. (laughs) Uh, To love her, to care for her, to raise her, to teach her, to lead her, all of that became much more real than it was nine months prior. In that moment, I had knowledge. I had knowledge that, oh no, and oh yay, (laughs) I'm I'm a dad. And this knowledge, it, it affected my life. It changed how I lived and how I acted and how I thought. All of a sudden, I was forgoing this beloved thing called sleep. (laughs) Willingly for somebody else. And I was willingly allowing another human to spit up their bodily fluids all over me. It was a very strange experience. This knowledge affected how I lived. It affected my behavior. I began having to sacrifice in various ways that I never had to before. Knowledge affects our behavior. You receive news that a loved one has died and you weep. Or you find out your application to the university you've always wanted to go to was accepted and you jump for joy. Knowledge affects our behavior. And the same is true for being a Christian. Uh, Being a Christian is a statement you're saying, I know God. I have knowledge of God. And according to our text today in Second Peter, to know God, to have knowledge of God, deeply and continually affects our behavior. It affects how we live. And so we're starting a new book series in the Book of Second Peter, uh, and we're going to be here every last Sunday of the month through the month of April. Um, and the reason, as you can see in the bulletin uh, on the right-hand side. Where the notes are, it says, 2 Peter dying words to the church. That's the name of the sermon series. And the reason uh, we named it this is because this letter acts as the Apostle Peter's, it's it's his last will and testament. In it, in in the end of chapter 1, or middle of chapter 1, Peter makes known that he's going to die soon. And likely, as we know from history under the persecution of the Roman emperor Nero, So he writes this letter uh, to tangibly preserve, in written form, his teachings for believers. And specifically, uh, Peter is writing to believers, in probably in Asia Minor, the same group of people that he wrote his first letter to, uh, because heretical teachers have risen up within these churches. And in short, um, these teachers claim that Jesus was not coming back, there would be no final judgment. And so you could basically be a Christian and kind of live however you want. You could follow Jesus and live completely against his commands. And that's okay. You can have your cake and eat it too. And so Peter, knowing what's going on in these churches and this, and this heretical teaching is rising up, he writes to address uh, not and, and condemn not only these false teachers and their bad theology, but then also encourage believers to keep growing as Christians. And so we're going to see more of that as we journey through the book of 2 Peter. But today, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, Peter starts his letter by making the point that knowing God leads to godly living. And this is, this is our big idea. Knowing God leads to godly living. And I want to explore this big idea and Peter's main point by asking three questions which will help guide us through our text. And the first one is on the screen, along with the big idea. Can, can Christians lead a godly life? Like, are you actually able to do this as a Christian? Can you lead a godly life? So let's start by reading verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. So Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours... By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So you'll see he starts out talking about he he's, he's he introduces himself and he gives his credentials. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he's and he gives who he's writing to. He's writing to believers who are all in equal standing before God. It's very interesting, even though he's an apostle, he's saying, You're all, hey, we're all we're all equal here before God. And he wishes them grace and peace in, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He's basically saying, you're Christians, guess what? You know God. You personally know God. And from here, as we get into verse 3 and further, Peter moves quickly into some pretty powerful theology, uh, which undergirds this main point that we're talking about, that knowing God leads to godly living. And so I'm going to read verse three and then we're going to talk about it. It says, His divine power, this is God, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So, so notice Peter's flow of thought. He said, He's, He's saying God by His own power has given believers, He's given us as believers everything that we need for life eternal and for godliness. So then you have to ask, okay, how? How has God given us everything that we need for life and godliness? And he says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In in other words, Peter's saying when God saved us who are believers, when we came to know God, when he called us to himself, he also gave us by his very own power everything that we need for eternal life and godly living. So it's not just that as a believer, if you claim to be a Christian today and you've come to an end of yourself and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's not just that you know God. But it's also then that God is enabling you by his very own power to lead a life that is pleasing to him. That is a Big statement. So we again ask, Peter, enlighten us. How does this how? How is this even possible? Where are you getting this from? God has given me everything that I need to lead a life that's pleasing to him. And that's what we see in verse four. We we get an answer to how in verse four. It says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So how, how has God given us everything that we need to lead a godly life? Well, the answer to that is that God made promises to his people. And Peter calls them very great and precious promises that God has made to his people. God made promises to his people concerning his own game plan to save humans from the destructive power of sin and then to change them, to transform them to be more like himself, to be more like Jesus. And I'm getting this from verse 4 when it says, so it's saying, so that through them, this is the middle of verse 4, so that through them, this is talking about the promises that God has made, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now this is not saying, this is not some weird thing where we all become gods. What this is talking about is what the New Testament, like Paul uses different language, he talks about being transformed into the image of Christ. Through God's promises, you are called to be partakers, to have fellowship with the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And so, if we want to view what's happening here in the perspective of the whole Bible, all the way in Genesis 1, all the way back in Genesis 1, the Bible claims that God made humans in his image, in his own likeness, for his own glory. To obey him, to represent him in the world, to reflect his character, to live in godly ways. To live like God, to image him. And in Genesis 3, when humans sinned against God and willingly, and willingly rebelled against him, uh, their sin led to death. It led to destruction, it led to judgment. And yet God, in his grace, had a game plan. He had a plan to save sinful humans by sending his own son to die on a cross, taking the judgment for sin that sinful humans deserve, and then rise from the grave so that if we believe in Jesus, if we trust what he has done on our behalf, we are forgiven of our sins and we escape from its destructive power. But salvation from sins is not where the story ends, is it? It's not just as if that weren't enough. It's not just that we're saved from our sins. The other part of God's plan, his plan of salvation, the final goal of God's game plan here, God also promises that those who believe in Jesus are then also progressively now in this life and one day we fully and finally will be transformed by God to be fully human again. To be in the image of God again. To be remade into God's likeness. To look like Jesus. That's what this is talking about. This is why Aaron Sherwood read from Ezekiel thirty six twenty five 25-27. It is one of the many promises of God in the Old Testament to cleanse his people from sin to give them a new heart, to fill them with his empowering spirit so that they would walk and live in his ways. That is the power that God has given you. He has given, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he has given you a new heart. And he is transforming you. He has given you the empowerment of, of his Holy Spirit so that you can walk in his ways and live a life that is pleasing to him. And so Peter here in these two verses is giving us tons of rich and deep theology that's going to drive his argument forward. And he's claiming that God not only has given us, as believers, the power to lead a godly life, but he's also, God has also given us his promises that he will see the work of making us more godly through to the end. Can we pause for a minute to let that sink in? Like, if if you are a Christian... God has set you up for success. That's, that's what Peter's saying. God has set you up for success. God, God is not shrewd or malicious. It's not like God's called you to lead a life that is godly, but given you no way to do it. Right? It's not like God's sitting back in heaven asking you to do something just so he can watch you fail. He is not shrewd or malicious. God knows that because of our sin, humans are totally incapable of pleasing him in our own strength. And so, in saving us, he's given us all that we need to be able to do this. So, what this ultimately points to is the fact that we serve a good and gracious God who calls us to live like him, but then also enables us to do that. So, with that in mind, one sense, I can look at every single one of you today, and with confidence say, that in the fight against temptation and sin, in the battle to lead a godly life, and I'm not trying to be trite or cliche, and I'm not lying, you can do it. I've never coached a team before, but that's what coaching, like you can do it. (laughs) What I'm not saying is that, is like, you got this because you can lead a godly life in your own strength. That's not what I'm saying. I'm also not saying that you got this because I think that the Bible promises that Christians are going to be perfect in this life. That's also not what I'm saying. But in one sense, we can all look at each other and say, you got this because Peter says God's got you. Does that make sense? Like God has given you everything that you need. So in one sense, you got this because he has you. He's got He's got a hold of you. God has made promises to change and transform you into the image of Jesus. And he's given you a new heart, the power of his spirit, the community of the church as he begins that process now in this life. He's set you up for success. And so with that in mind, I, I'm, I'm just aware that there could be somebody sitting in this room today who is listening to this and they're going, I'm not a Christian. Or maybe you're sitting here and you come from a Christian family and maybe you're here because your parents dragged you here. But you have never really put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so everything that I'm talking about, about salvation uh, from sin, death, uh, salvation from sin and death and God's judgment and this trajectory of transformation that is available, the hope of everlasting life is just not yours. And... The reality is, is that this is God's gracious gift to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So if that's something that you'd like to talk more about, um, I would love to talk to you about that. Or I'm sure that there's a lot of people around you that would love to talk to you about that after the service. So I so I asked this question: can Christians lead a godly life? And the answer is, according to Peter, it's a resounding yes. God has given us his power. He's given us his promises so that we can do that. The next question becomes, okay, I can live a godly life, so uh, is this hard? Like, is it going to be hard? Has God just given me everything that I need, but uh, great, he's going to do it all? Or is this going to be a hard process? Let's read verse 5. Peter says for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Notice again Peter's logic. He says for this very reason because God has set you up for success to lead a godly life. He's given you everything that you need. Peter says then, make every effort. You should do the following. Make every effort to do what I'm about to tell you. And then he gives us this list of virtues. So he says, supple, "So he says, um, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue here is, could be translated goodness. It's talking about just moral uprightness. And supplement virtue with knowledge. Knowledge is living wisely in this life according to God's standard. Applying God's word to your whole life. And supplement your knowledge with self-control. And this self-control is diametrically opposed to unrestrained indulgence. And supplement your self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness is, is endurance through the battle of faith in this life as a believer. And supplement your steadfastness with godliness. And supplement your godliness with brotherly affection. Loving those who are a part of your family, your kids, your wife, your spouse. But also loving the church. Loving other members of your church. Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And supplement your brotherly affection with love. So he ends the list with this crowning jewel of love. And what this is getting at is... That while God has set you and me as believers up for success to lead a godly life, this doesn't mean that we just sit back and don't do anything. I mean, we read in verse 5, Peter says, Make every effort. Or, look at verse 8. For if these qualities, so these virtues that we just read, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there is an expectation that Christians will always be growing in godliness and Jesus like qualities. If you look at that list, those are all things that Jesus has. Like he's the master of all those. Knowing God leads to godly living. Knowing God should affect how we live, how we act, how we speak, how we think. It consumes your whole life. It lays, if you know God, it lays a claim on your life that your life should be in accordance with that reality. Your whole person. And this is especially true if believers are those who God has given his power and promises to. To expect something different would just be completely inconsistent. It would logically just not work. If God has given you everything and he's saying, I'm going to bring that to its end, then the normal expectation would be that Christians are people who are growing in their godliness. In other words, as Christians, because God has given us all that we need to live a godly life, we should seek to do so. And according to Peter, we should be highly intentional. I I think that's what he's getting at when he says make every effort. We should be highly intentional about seeking to grow in our godliness. And when we read verses 5 to 7, all those virtues that we went through, faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. You know, if when I was reading through these, part of the reality is is that all these things really could go into every single part of my life. Like, I don't know an area of my life or your life that these virtues don't cover. It touches on whether or not I interact lovingly in all my relationships with my coworkers, my family members, church members, concerns my self-control and how I use my time or steward the good gifts of technology or interact with Amazon.com or the list could go on, right? In other words, this text makes us ask ourselves if we are claiming to be Christians here today, am I making every effort to grow in my godliness and in my Christian living? How am I or how am I not Intentionally strategizing to grow in the way that I apply God's word in my life and the way that I love others? What am I doing about my prickliness when I am just cranky and tired? What am I doing about the selfishness in my life? Am I strategizing in the power of the Holy Spirit and even maybe with some brothers and sisters? what's my game plan to attack this and to put it to death? And this is hard, isn't it? Right? I mean, if... (laughs) Maybe you're tired this morning, but if after reading through that list of virtues in verses 5 to 7, if we're not shaking a little bit, feeling the weightiness of how, like how high the calling is for us as believers and how we should be living, uh, you're not alone, um, because th- there's a weightiness to this. I think in every one of these areas, I'm sure that we can all see ourselves failing to some degree. And the fact that God has given believers his power and his promises to live a godly life does not mean that living this life is going to be a piece of cake. So, knowing God leads the godly living, can a Christian lead a godly life? The answer is Yes. He's given us his power and his promises. Is this going to be hard? Is it going to be a, or is it going to be a piece of cake? Well, According to Peter, I, I, this is going to be hard. Making every effort is hard. It's exerting ourselves to this end. Living a godly life will be hard. And I think that this is why we need to remember and always go back to the truths that Peter gives us in verses 3 and 4. That you can. Like, God has given you everything. And especially, you know, in, if, if you're a member at this church, um, one of the things that we have you do in becoming a member is we have you sign what's called a church covenant. And it's basically, it, it, it's a way that we let you know, hey, here's what you're signing up for. And we want to, when we sign our church covenant and every members meeting that we have at our church, we recite or we we, we listen Read our, our church covenant together. And part of our church covenant is that we've actually, if if you're a member at the church, we've committed, every one of us is committed to helping others in our church follow Jesus as they help us follow Jesus. Like that's part of what it means to be a Christian. And so I think as we've committed to doing that for one another, one of the ways that we do that is that um, we remind each other of both of these promises as we interact with each other, as we talk about our struggles in growing in godliness, as we talk about the ways in which we have failed or the ways that we are not living up to what God has called us to, um, we can stand as brothers brothers and sisters and, and remind each other, press on, brother. Like, you got this. God has given you everything that you need. He's with you. On the other hand, when we see somebody struggling in sin and temptation and they're blind to it, we can also call them out and say, Brother, sister, remember, this is, remember the holy calling that God has placed on you and how He has asked you to live. There's a balancing act there. But we we all need both of those promises in our lives, don't we? So knowing God leads to godly living, can Christians lead a godly life? Yes. Because God's given us his power and his promises. And is it, is it hard? It is. It is hard. So the last question, in verses 9 through 11, is, does this, living a godly life, does it matter? Like, is it a significant or important thing or not? Does living a godly life matter? And so, if we're following Peter's logic if there's an expectation that those who are believers are going to be those who are making every effort, they're exerting themselves to live in godly ways, uh, then what does it mean if somebody doesn't lead a godly life? What does that say? Or, to put it differently, how do the believers that Peter is writing to categorize? How do they think about the false heretical teachers in their churches— who claim to be Christians but are living ungodly lives. And when we get to chapter 2 in a few months, uh, we will see the type of lives that these false teachers were, were leading. They were not living godly lives. They were greedy. They were taking other people down those paths. They were okay with just having casual sex outside of marriage. There was all sorts of horrendous things that they were doing. So, how should the believers that Peter's writing to think through people who are claiming to be Christians, but their profession of faith doesn't match the profession of their life? And this is what verse 9 addresses. Peter says, For whoever lacks these qualities, these virtues that he listed out in verses 5 through 7, is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten. That he was cleansed from his former sins. In essence, those like the false teachers who claim to be Christians, but then lead lives that lack growth in the virtues that Peter lists in verses five to seven, he says they're blind. They're, they actually are just acting like unbelievers. To not live a godly life, but to call yourself a Christian is inconsistent and an illogical, preposterous claim. It just doesn't make sense. If to be a Christian, right? If we're following Peter's logic here, if to be a Christian means that you're a part of God's game plan and you have the power and the promises of God, then if somebody isn't living in that way, it brings into question whether they're truly a Christian or not. Like, if you are a fish, you will smell like a fish. You will swim like a fish. you will act like a fish. You will be fishy. <laughs> if you are an orange tree, and I see that there are apples on you, I go, "You can call yourself an orange tree all day long." But all I see are apples. You're apple. You're not orangey. And the <laughs> If you're a Christian, you will smell like a Christian. The, the fragrance of your life will be christian How you look will be Christian. And again, this does not mean perfection. It means process. There's fruit in your life. And so the opposite is true as well, right? So if it's inconsistent for somebody to claim to be a Christian and not live that, not live a godly life, and it's basically saying, well, I don't even know if you're a Christian. Then the opposite is true as well, right? To lead a godly life points to the fact that you're probably the real deal. And this is what Peter gets at in verses 10 and 11. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Leading a godly life matters because it confirms your calling and election. It confirms the fact, it's a proof that God has called you to himself he has elected you to salvation, that he has saved you. And Peter just continues, he says, "Not only that, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. And, and it, it seems pretty clear here what he's getting at is not, he's not again, he's not talking about falling into sin, falling into like Peter's very aware that we're not going to be perfect in this life, but you're not going to be duped by false teaching. Living a godly life actually keeps you safe. But more than that, it also stands as a reminder. It stands as a security. It stands as a proof. It stands as a a monument that you can point to that shows you and reminds you that you're headed on, you're, you're going down the right path. You're on the path to eternal glory. Look at verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So really, what this is getting at and what Peter is trying to tell believers is that leading a godly life matters because it has to do with the assurance of your salvation as a believer. And I don't know that we've necessarily, I don't know that we think in those categories all the time. It's Peter is not saying Good works, leading a godly life, will save you. That would just be highly inconsistent with everything that he said up to this point. But good works do prove that you are saved. Faith without works is dead, so James would say. And this is important because there is multiple reasons. One of the reasons this is important is because we need to be aware that there are Christians who would claim to be Christians and they promote the idea that, guess what? You prayed a prayer, you raised your hand, and you can live however you want. It doesn't really matter how you live. Your personal godliness and holiness doesn't really matter. And that's just highly inconsistent with the gospel. If the gospel of Jesus Christ truly changes people, it will be evident. You, it will come to fruition. There will be fruit. You'll be fishy, orangey, Christiany. So if you want something to, you want like a metal detector for false teaching, th- this, this is a metal detector. It's, it's one of the many but this is one if if there are people telling you that it doesn't really matter how you live as a christian that's just that's just wrong it's just inconsistent with the bible but I, I think even more important than this um one of the reasons that it's important to talk about the fact that our good works actually are connected with our assurance of salvation as believers is because in in our day and age um and even among christians but but especially in in our wider culture, there is a high level of focus and importance and credence given to our internal emotional and subjective experience. Would you agree with that? It doesn't really... Objective truth doesn't really matter. It's how I feel that matters. Now, we know ways that our culture is, is doing this. Um. But even as Christians, we do this. When we, sometimes I think that when we struggle with issues of assurance of our salvation, it can very much turn into, I don't feel like God accepts me. We know objectively the Bible says something different, right? But I don't feel that way. There's a high level of credence and importance and weight given to our internal emotions And our subjective experience. But what we see in God's economy is a little different, isn't it? In God's economy, our assurance is not hitched to feeble and fickle feelings. It's not hitched to our subjective experiences. Our assurance is hitched to tangible and visible realities. It's hitched to the truth of God's word. It's also hitched, according to Peter, to the way that you live your life. Which I think if if you are a Christian and you are growing in godliness, this is this should be a massive encouragement to you. Somebody who is overly scrupulous could take this and run the opposite direction and go, oh no, I messed up this morning. Maybe I'm not a Christian. That is not what Peter is saying. What he is saying is God has given you the power and the promises to live a Christian life and it's hard but if there is a consistent witness throughout your life that you are growing in godliness you are pursuing God you hate sin ultimately you, you just hate it that is a witness to you of, that should be a witness of the assurance of your salvation that God has done something supernatural in you that could not have happened apart from you. I once knew, um, I, I know somebody who, he, um, this person came, came to faith in Christ, um, and their, one of their siblings was not a Christian. Um, and he was sharing the truth of what God had done in his life. He was sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, with his sibling. And um, even though his, it was his brother, his, his brother had said, um, you know, I just, he, he kind of thinks he's a Christian, but he's not really, and he doesn't really accept the truth of the gospel, but his, his brother told him, he said, you know, I remember, I remember when you became a Christian. There was, there was such a stark change in your life, and in the way that you lived, and the way that you thought. I just knew that it had to be a work of God in your life. It's a testimony, right? Not just, and it's a testimony in that story to the truth of the gospel, but it's also a testimony to that person who was sharing the gospel that God had done a supernatural work in his life, and it was becoming evident. It's a progressive work where it's just manifesting So, what, what I want to say to us today, and I think what Peter would say to us, is that when we fight against sin, when others can look into your life and not see perfection, but they see humility around your own failings, when others can look at your life and see progressive growth, when brothers and sisters in the church can see that you are growing in godliness, you're following Jesus, this is a proof That God has saved you and he has fundamentally changed you and that you are headed for heaven. That your hope will be richly provided for you, as Peter talks about. And that you will enter the eternal kingdom of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So it's not it's not just an assurance that it's pointing backwards. It's also pointing forwards to the hope that we have of the gospel. That one day everything will be made right. So, to ask the question again, does leading a godly life really matter? Yes. It is a major proof that you're a believer. And it reminds you where you're headed. It reminds you that God has saved you and that you're headed for heaven. So, I began asking the question or making the statement knowledge affects our behavior. And specifically, We're making the claim, and Peter's making the claim, that knowing God leads to a godly life. It leads to godly living. And though leading a godly life is hard, it's not always easy, there is exertion that needs to happen. If we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can truly lead a godly life. God has given us everything that we need. His power and his promises. And he has set us up for success. And this assures us that we will arrive safely home in his eternal kingdom to experience the full fulfillment of God's precious and very great promises forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we, um, we marvel at your graciousness and your goodness to us, providing us everything that we need. We thank you this morning that you are not malicious, that you are good, and we praise you, Father, for giving us everything that we need for life and godliness, and we ask as your people that you would comfort us with those promises, help us in the fight and battle against sin and temptation. Would you continue to grow us into your image and into your likeness, and would you assure us continually of our salvation and where we are headed? We praise you and we thank you, and we pray these things in your name, amen.